We're going to talk briefly about the foundation uh, from where we're going to be coming and where we're going to be looking at God's Word. And then we're going to read the scriptures. I'm going to read to you from the message, although I'll be preaching from the NIV. But I think the message adds something very profound. And remember, you've heard me say this before. We're going to be examining the text. What you will find is the text is examining you. Okay? That's the mystery of what preaching from God's Word is. And then I want to summarize it all. I'm holding an imaginary mirror up. I hope you can all see yourself in it. Yes? I noticed one or two people straightening their hair. Some of us are more challenged in that direction. Do you know how God sees you? He actually calls you saints. If every single one of you this morning who knows Jesus and loves him and trusts him as their personal saviour is a saint. Hagioi. When I'm abroad teaching pastors, one of the lovely little tricks I love to play on them, because they, they think here has this theologian come to teach us. One of the things I love to do, and time doesn't permit this morning, is to ask them, the congregation, or in this case, the pastors abroad, to write me a definition of a saint. Now, whether it's trying to impress teacher or not, I get some very erudite theological statements. And I tell them that I've already got the best definition in the world here in front of you, in front of them, in my script. So they're trying to impress teacher, which is fine. And some of it is excellent. When I was a young Christian, I worked in Liverpool 8, which is the vice centre of Liverpool. I worked in the hospital. I had just come to faith as a 15-year-old and uh, gone into work in a medical lab. And uh, everything was new to me in the faith. And I used to go up to the cathedral. And that was before uh, Paddy's wigwam was built as well. It was the real cathedral, as some people in Liverpool say. And I would go into one of the little side chapels during my lunch break. I'd eaten my chips, uh, and then I went in. Those were sacred memories. And although I come out of a very evangelical, charismatic theology, there is something that is so important in other aspects of spirituality. Because a saint is someone through whom the light shines. You got the imagery? A saint is someone through whom the light shines. And God calls you saints this morning, and you are saints. You may not feel very perfect. I don't suppose for a moment you are, any more than I am. But he calls you saints. 
He imputes righteousness. Wonderful word. He counts it. He counts you holy. He sees you as in Jesus. And then he begins the lifetime process that I was chatting with Mark about in the week. He begins uh, the lifetime process, and it takes a lifetime, to move you from where you are, counted righteous, counted holy in Christ, to actually make you holy. Dealing not with the behavior alone, but with what goes on in here. And Mark will know that I said to him in the week, I quoted St. Augustine, that the more you move on in your pilgrimage, the more you will be aware of not feeling holy, but feeling the very opposite. Did you hear that? That's important you hear. Because the, the type of teaching about spirituality that makes you feel aware of your wonder is devoid of reality. You will be aware of your inner fragility, your inner frailty, yes, your own inner sinfulness. James helpfully last week referred to Galatians 5. And if we're going to move from this process of being counted righteous to being made righteous or being counted holy and made holy, then we need to understand the teaching in Galatians about walking in the Spirit, about walking together in the Spirit. It's all in Galatians 5. James referred tangentially to that, but that's worth a thought, a further thought. That's the foundation on which we are starting this morning. Let me read to you from God's Word. I'm reading from 1 Peter, verse 16, uh, no, earlier. Let me get the context right. This won't look like your Bible if you've got an NIV in front of you, but it's helpful. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life. A life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy. You be holy. You call out to God for help, and he helps. He's a good father that way, but don't forget, he's also a responsible father and won't let you get away with sloppy living. Your life is a journey you must travel with the deep consciousness of God. It cost God plenty to get you out of that dead-end, empty-headed life you grew up in. He paid with Christ's sacred blood, you know. He died like an unblemished sacrificial lamb. And this was no afterthought. Even though it had only lately, at the end of the age, become public knowledge, God always knew he was going to do this. It's because of this sacrificial Messiah whom God has raised from the dead and glorified that you trust God, that you know you have a future in God. And on the foundation that James laid very helpfully last week, and what I've reminded you about, I'm going to say two things to you. To very practical things about your life and indeed about mine. Number one, 
You need to be fearful. You did hear that. You need to be fearful. Number two, you need to be grateful. Look with me, first of all, at that opening verse. And I'm going back to the NIV because that's the one you probably have in front of you. Be fearful. This is what it says. It's be holy because I am holy and then it flows into since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially live your life as strangers here in reverent fear. About 25 years ago DLT uh, the publishers asked me to write a book. Uh, it was part of a series. They were more monologues than sort of seriously full books on the subject of the fatherhood of God. And I was given the brief of actually looking at the interrelationship between the biblical teaching about the fatherhood of God and human psychotherapy and particularly counselling. Now, eventually, it was one of those financial crises that we have every three and a half years in our country, and they pulled the whole series, and it never, ever got published, although I wrote two chapters. And I'd actually got a title. And my title, as part of the sermon, is Daddy, Is God Like You? Daddy, is God like you? It is abundantly evident that children's first perceptions of God are linked to their experience of an earthly father. And much of what you actually first feel and know and sense, rightly or wrongly, probably a mixture, about God, is linked in to that whole issue. Now, I have not got time this morning to spend time thinking about the fatherhood of God, but I just want to make that point because these days, and rightly so, there is a renewed emphasis. Tom Smale kicked it off brilliantly, but countless other authors, Floyd McClung and others like that, have written brilliantly on the subject of the fatherhood of God, and we need to retrieve that. You have got a loving, heavenly Father who is available night and day to you, who is loving and who is accepting. But, but, he's not only Father. See, the problem about using human analogies about God is that whether you realize it or not, you bring, I bring, all your human baggage into the very idea of the word. And I find it fascinating that Peter, writing to these Christians, talks to them and reminds them that they're talking about a God who's a father. But you know what I'm going to say now, don't you? Who is a, a judge. Now, Rachel and I grew up in a spirituality where the thing we heard more about than anything was judge, right? And are there any others who can identify that? God was a judge, wasn't he? The way you first heard about him, trying to find you out. And he did, well, he didn't need to find you out, he knew anyway, but that was the perception. 
that was the perception. God is a judge. We didn't like that. Well, can warm quite easily to the idea of fatherhood. I had a good father. He was wonderfully eccentric. He was extremely eccentric, my wife tells me. I'm getting like him, she says, <laughs> which I'm still trying to interpret. He was a good man. Used to play endless hours of cricket with me down the back alley. But my first memory of my father is seeing him on his knees when I came down to make a cup of tea in the morning. There's a story behind how he came to faith and how our family uh, was launched because we're not serious Christians generationally. Just remarkably, the hand of God was on him. He was a wonderful father, approachable. And God's like that. But please, in your need and in, your, in our emphasis about God as Father, don't forget that he's also judge. This is not to frighten you. This is not to put you under guilt. It is to recognize that one day, the Jesus who I have known and loved for 60 years nearly, I will need to stand before him and in the integrity of his all-knowingness, I will need to give an account. Did you hear me? And that is exactly where you are. Exactly where I am. So he's Father. You can call on him anytime, but he's going to judge impartially. See, God knows about motivation. Even sometimes our best deeds are actually with very mixed motives, are they not? And the Holy Spirit has a wonderful way of unearthing that when he deals with us in the privacy of our own lives. But he's a father and he's a judge and he'll work. All that we do will be impartially um, lived out. So we are to live as strangers here in reverent fear. For God's sake and for your sake, don't get too at home here in the earth. You're not here forever. And so many Christians are totally earthbound. Now, you don't want the extreme where they're heavenly minded so much that they're no earthly use. But, but, please understand, I preach to myself, this father, this judge, calls us to live in reverent fear. I've been reading, rereading, and I commend to your reading if you want to develop this further, uh, Roger, help me. Forster. Thank you. Roger Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. No, not Roger Foster. Richard Foster. Thank you. Great Quaker theologian, a man who's very, very significant in our lives. He was preaching when Rachel was baptized in the Spirit. He's prayed over us when we were going through the trauma of losing our daughter. He's very important, but in his book, Celebration of Discipline, he's talking about those spiritual disciplines, submission, confession, worship, prayer, 
meditation, fasting, that help us to develop. We're to live in reverent fear. And the Quakers said this, and let me quote it. Reverence, and this is why I'm telling you to be fearful, because phobos, to me, phobos has a negative sound to it. If I use the word fear, I spend my time praying with people, or many people, who struggle with fear, and you're trying to get them to get rid of that fear, but there is a different fear, which is not phobos. It is reverent phobos, and we are as Christians, to have that. Reverence is the attitude of mind of a man who sees and performs every action and speaks every word in the conscious recognition of God. Gosh, that makes me feel a bit guilty. Yeah? But God knows and God sees every single action and he knows your thoughts and he knows mine. We're urged to live in the light of eternity as sojourners. We're here for a short time. Our darling daughter-in-law taught us more about that than any other human being I have ever met. She was diagnosed with terminal cancer and was given three months to live. She already had a major neuromuscular disease where she had to depend on drugs from every three hours so she could breathe. And uh, obviously we were deeply involved. She battled on for three years before God took her home on <coughs> Easter Sunday. So you can imagine every Easter Sunday, I was called out of the service on Easter Sunday to go to her deathbed. So you can imagine the, the significance of that. And the reason I'm telling and using that as an illustration is that she said to me, I was in the middle of writing my master's thesis and we talked very deeply. She said to me, Dad, I have to live every single moment as if it's my last. Because she had this neuromuscular disease, if she didn't have her drugs within three hours, she could stop breathing. And she taught us, and taught me anyway, and Rachel as well, I'm sure, and countless others, so much about what it was to live in the light of eternity. And that is that not to be unhealthily concerned, because that can be destructive too, because fear, it can be destructive, but reverent fear. You've got me? Reverent fear. Fear of God. Why would you ever want to offend God anyway? If you tell me you're a Christian. I know you do and so do I. And thank God it's possible to say sorry and no forgiveness. But why would you ever want to do that? So be fearful. But it's a godly reverential fear. Secondly, be grateful. Look at what verse 18 says. Let me read that again to you and then I'll point, point out the three things that I want to draw your attention to. For we know it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 
Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. I want to say three things, or draw out the three key points that are in that passage, that, or the, the verses that we read, that I think just exemplify and expand this idea of being grateful. First of all, Jesus is our great emancipator. He's the one who gives us freedom. He's the one as the Messiah, the one as the Lamb, using the imagery that John Smith was showing uh, last week, who took upon himself the sins of the world. What an incredible statement to make. I mean, I say it, and I travel around the world. He took upon himself the sins of the whole world, previous to his life and future from his life. He took upon himself the sins of the whole world. I think if you really wrestle with that one, you might have an insight about why it was that he screamed from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Human traditions that he refers to liberating us from, of course, some traditions are good. Yeah? Some traditions are good. Traditio means something handed down from the past. There are some traditions that are good. There's an awful lot that is handed down that isn't good. And sometimes I buried in your heart. Again, referring to pastors when I was in India with uh, David Ball in uh, January. One of the things I ask them to do, and I'm asking you to do it, is how much of the way you live, how much of the culture that describes your life and mine is truly godly and biblical? And how much of it has simply been absorbed because it's the way things are? And they have to wrestle with that because sometimes Christ will conflict with culture. Yeah, he does. But actually, sometimes, of course, he will reinforce culture in a positive way. Sometimes there are many things that, as Luther said, are just neutral. But Jesus is that great emancipator. He's the beautiful Passover lamb that we think of. Secondly, Jesus Christ is God's eternal purpose. Look at verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. The God we're talking about, the Jesus we're talking about, according to Colossians, was involved in shaping the universe in the way that we see it. And he's actually involved, and this is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. I know charismatics think Holy Spirit is entirely tied into their little imagery. He isn't. 
He's so much bigger. He's the one who holds the universe in space. He's actively involved. He knows where Uranus and he knows where Venus and he knows where Saturn is. He's deeply involved still in creation. Of course, he's wonderfully involved in recreation, which is the thing that we so often talk about. We talk about being born again, we talk about recreation, but he's still involved in creation. But here's the point I want, which I don't mean keeps me awake at night, but on the rare occasions when I don't sleep, I have thought about this one. He was the lamb slain, listen to this, before the foundation of the world. Now here's something to take home and think. This is your homework. Essays on my desk next Sunday. No, I'm not be here. I'm over at Starbridge. Pentecost Sunday. Great day. Before he was a creator, Jesus, he was a redeemer. Do you understand that? Please, if you do, come and tell me. I cannot get my head around. I can understand a little bit about creation because God's power, God's word has such power and I know that energy and mass are interrelated. E equals MC squared. I can understand how God speaks a powerful word and flies a cosmos into space. But before all that happened, in the heart of God, he was a redeemer. Now, I don't understand that. And I'm not asking you to understand that with your minds. I'm asking you to hear that and be grateful. He's not only your emancipator, he is the one who is God's eternal purpose. And he was a redeemer before he was ever a creator. And finally, through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. I've stood outside the wall of Jerusalem in the garden tomb where they put the body of my Savior. And there is an empty grave there. Because he's not in a grave, is he? He's alive. He's not on that cross. He was on the cross. He's eternally now at the right hand of the Godhead, making intercession for us. And that rests on the fact that he was raised from the dead. And can I just make this point? So many Christians you hear talk about the fact that Jesus raised himself. It wasn't Jesus who raised himself. It was God the Father who raised Jesus. Man said... He deserves to die, and they put him in a, a stone-cold tomb, but God said, that's my son. And in the miracle of the resurrection, he was raised from the dead. How many of you knew that Thursday was Ascension Sunday? One or two of you, good. He's actually, as I speak to you, this Jesus who doesn't have blue eyes, or blonde hair, is actually at God's right hand making intercession for you 
and for me. That's what he's doing now. Because he's been glorified, he's been raised, he's been glorified. Two practical things follow, and I've got five minutes to pull this together. Two practical things follow. That being true, that there's an empty tomb, and that Jesus is alive, soon to return. I remember as a young Christian telling Rachel, when God called her to be a missionary, we were just boyfriend and girlfriend, that Jesus was going to come back before we got time to get married. And I've been wrong about other things too. But he is coming back. Many of us believe it cannot be too long. But in practice, we live in 2016. And we're here for how much longer? Who knows? For any of us. Two things can flow from the truth I've been expounding to you. Number one is that you can have faith. And number two is that you can have hope in God. And I want you to go out of the service this morning with a sense that you can trust God and with a sense that you can be absolutely certain. Faith is pistis, hope is lepsis. You can be absolutely certain. My son, who was nearly 50, when he was a little boy, all golden hair and curls, learned to climb on the kitchen table when we were in Nigeria. Concrete floors. It was fairly primitive. He was only two years old. And Dad came in from school having taught thermodynamics with my arms full of books. And as I came in the door, there he was, standing on the table. Daddy, catch! <laughs> Just launched himself. So I let him crash to the floor and said, now that'll teach you to trust your father. <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe not. Drop the books somehow. He can still remember that. Because he actually... Miracle of miracles, trusted his father, right? Sadly, I've let him down many times, not actually falling on the floor, but he, he, knows, he knows now that I'm a very, very poor, pale reflection of what his heavenly father's like. And he needed to know that through the traumas that he's been through in his life. You may have faith in God, pistis. There will be someone who will whisper in your ear about conditional faith, but you may have utterly unconditional trust in God. Thank you, Pastor. One of our two pastors. You can. And you can have lipsis hope for the future and I'm not talking about being in heaven though that's wonderful I'm talking about the security that comes from knowing that you are in this relationship with God time is gone you're called to be holy you are holy 
God's in the process of making you internally the person he counts you superficially as. And it's not that he's playing a game, it's just that it's a process. In the light of the fact that he's called you to be holy, be reverently fearful and be grateful. And have faith and have hope because of him. Alan.